1: The Echo House. It was remarkably unlucky, the series of events that led to my parents' deaths. If it had happened to someone else's parents, I might have marveled at it. I'd have come across it online, on someone's blog about gruesome peculiarities, and I would have sat back in wonder looking at the situation with the kind of cool detachment through which we observe the world's atrocities. But I wasn't allowed the luxury of being a mere spectator. It didn't happen to someone else's parents. It happened to mine. Right here in my hometown, no less than 30 minutes after I'd last seen them. We lived in a small mountain town called Colville in northeastern Utah. I had dreams of leaving there someday, but at the time I was quite happy in the old mining town. It was nestled amongst jagged canyons and surrounded by sprawling forests. You could drive for 10 minutes in any direction and find yourself in a landscape replete with natural beauty. As an aspiring nature writer who looked up to the likes of Terry Tempest Williams and Edward Abbey, Colville's mountainous solitude was a source of inspiration for me. I had moved out of my parents' house the summer before, and found myself an apartment a few miles away. On that Sunday afternoon, I'd had my folks over for lunch. We were due for a heavy snowstorm, though it was already late in the spring, and when the first flakes began to fall, my father got to his feet, offered my mother a concise nod, and exclaimed that it was time for them to leave. I remember laughing at his abrupt and stringent nature, but also kind of honoring it in a way. For my whole life, my father had been a man of great principle and discipline. He was pragmatic and outspoken with his doubts about my ability to make a living as a writer. But through it all, I loved him. If for nothing else, simply because he was so unapologetically himself. And in his way, I knew that he loved me too. Or at least that's the story I tell myself. As they stepped out the front door, my mother turned back and looked at me with what I would later consider to be an eerie sense of foreboding. Her eyes were warm but uncertain. It was as if she knew in that moment that she and my father would never reach their destination. She laid her palm on my shoulder and, with quiet kindness, she told me that she was proud of me. I remember wondering why she saw fit to say something like that in that moment, before shrugging it off and saying thanks. After reminding them to drive safe, as they always did to me when snow was on the forecast, I gently shut the door. The next time I would see them would be when I identified their bodies in the morgue. On their way home, my parents came around a corner to see that the snowpack had given way and a small avalanche had spilled out into the street. From what the claims investigator could gather, my father stepped on the brake, but the car wouldn't stop. As it turned out, my parents' 2007 Mercury Milan had a faulty valve in the hydraulic control unit. The valve had frozen open, extending brake pedal travel and making the car nearly impossible to stop. Their car rammed into the slab of snow with just enough force to bury the hood in the slowly moving mass. The airbags deployed, but nobody could conclusively discern whether or not they were still conscious at this point. The avalanche pushed their car against a snowdrift on the shoulder of the road, and it was in that exact spot that a boulder, which had been dislodged a few hundred yards uphill, would come to a screeching halt. The 18-ton rock careened down the hill before landing squarely on the roof of my parents' sedan, killing them both instantly. Three months after the accident, Mercury would recall 780,000 of their Milans on account of the faulty brake valve found in the model's hydraulic control unit. If the brakes had been working properly, my parents probably would have been able to stop the car well before hitting the avalanche, before the drifting mass of snow put them in the direct trajectory of a colossal falling boulder. And they would most likely still be alive today, Mercury offered my sister and I a sizable settlement, enough for me to quit my job and focus on writing full-time. But we didn't care about the money. There was no amount of monetary compensation that could put you at ease about the premature death of your parents. If anything, I felt like the money was an impediment. It gave me too much time to think, too much time to stew on what I could have done different, how I could have been a better son. When it happened, my sister, who's three years older than me, had been living in Salt Lake City while going through nursing school. She decided to come back to Colville, and her and I moved back into the house where we'd grown up. It was uncanny walking those halls in acknowledgement of our parents' permanent absence. Something that had always been there was now gone, and neither my sister nor I quite knew how to reconcile that. We were glad to have each other, though, And while it seemed at times odd for us to be living together as adults in the house where our deceased parents had lived, there were many times when the only support we had was that which we could give each other. For me, the hardest part about the grieving process was the constant struggle for sleep. Most nights I laid awake into the early hours of the morning, a barrage of uncomfortable memories roaring through my head. It's not that I had done anything especially terrible in my life. I hadn't experienced any serious trauma. But I was gripped by an unyielding desire to rectify something. And especially with my parents gone, I felt rudderless, obtuse. Like I didn't know where I fit into the world. I was grappling with a lost sense of direction. On the nights when I did find sleep... My rest was plagued by excruciatingly vivid dreams. They weren't nightmares, per se, more like unnerving explorations of the places I had never been. I would find myself in some desolate locale or some nonsensical building with innumerable rooms, and I'd be held captive by a constant sense of dread, a perpetual desire to find my way back home. And all the while, I would be entirely alone, In one dream that began to occur regularly, I found myself prodding through a woodland that wasn't unlike the hills outside of Colville. The landscape would open into a clearing, and I would find a strange white house. It had a rugged-looking exterior and a shoddy roof that was laden with moss. In every dream where the house appeared, I would be paralyzed by the sight of it, there was something about the oblique nature of the structure that made me uneasy. Still, I would find myself almost unable to keep from walking towards it, as if some silent force was beckoning me. Inevitably, I'd reach for the house's doorknob, and, inevitably, as I touched it, I would wake up, often consumed by panic and a cold sweat breaking out across my skin. The dream was disturbing, but its effects scarcely lingered for more than a few minutes after waking. The ominous house that I'd been seeing in my dreams seemed like nothing more than the product of a strained consciousness. I had no reason to believe that it was connected to anything outside my dreams. That was until I saw the video. As I sat at my computer trying to kill time one day, The YouTube video recommendation algorithm suggested a video that threatened to cripple everything I thought I knew about the world. The video was called, Strange House Appears Near Echo, Utah. And before I even clicked on it, I already knew what strange house it pertained to. There, in the video's thumbnail, I saw something that I had previously thought impossible. A house which, up until that point, had only existed in my dreams was apparently found and documented in the real world. It was in the same clearing of the same woods, featured the same mossy roof, and had the same white wood siding with the same weather-beaten marks. I stared at the thumbnail in awe, my pulse beginning to race, trying to understand what I was looking at. Upon clicking on the video, I was presented with shaky footage filmed by a person walking through the woods, As the person filming walks into the eerily familiar clearing, they begin to narrate what they're seeing. I'm out here hiking in Echo. It's a place I come to pretty often. Walk my dog, stuff like that. I... I don't know if you'd believe this, but... this house I'm looking at here... It wasn't here a week ago. He goes on to explain the impossibility of the situation. How the house shows signs of wear, as if it had been there for decades. But he remains persistent with his conviction that he hadn't seen it on any of his previous walks through the clearing. He walks around the perimeter of the house, inspecting its exterior. He runs his hands over the wooden siding. Filming the way the paint flakes to the touch. At one point, he holds the camera up to one of the windows, but not much could be made out on the inside. You can see him grab the doorknob and give it a firm shake, an image that made me feel unsettlingly prophetic, given I had done the exact same thing in my dreams of the house. But the doorknob doesn't budge when he tries to open it. After a few minutes of exploring the house, he tells the viewer that the house is leaving an uncomfortable impression on him, that there's something inexplicable about it and he feels like he shouldn't be there. He begins walking back the way he came before the video abruptly ends. The video had been posted by a guy named Henry Jensen. I clicked on his profile and found that there were two follow-up videos to his original exploration of the house. The second video begins very similarly to the first. In it, Henry is approaching the clearing. The viewer can see his shaky steps, can hear his labored breathing. He explains that since first finding the house, he hadn't been able to stop thinking about it. He mentioned that he'd been having dreams about it, a detail that sent a cold chill rippling down my spine. Eventually, he decided to return, to see if he could find anything inside that could help him explain the house's sudden appearance. You can see in the corner of the frame that he's carrying a crowbar, which he's apparently planning on using to pry the front door open. When he arrives before the door, he wedges the crowbar into the door frame, but before he tries to force the door open, he seems to hesitate. He lifts his hand to the doorknob and, with apparent surprise, finds it to be open. I wasn't sure why, but something about the doors being unlocked made me feel suddenly afraid. Had someone unlocked it in anticipation of his return? I felt a vague sensation that Henry was being toyed with, that he was being lured into something. As he steps inside, he finds the house to be empty and dark. It takes his camera a few seconds to adjust to the dim lighting. There's no furniture inside, no lamps, no carpet. Just bare wooden walls and a bare wooden floor. There are two windows on either side, through which sparse light enters. Henry spends a few seconds assessing the interior before the camera pans upward, and the viewer can just make out a door in the ceiling, apparently leading to an attic. You can see him reach upwards, but the door's wooden handle is well out of reach. He exudes a brief sigh, and the video ends. In the third and final video, Henry is again returning to the strange white house. This time, he appears to be carrying a red stepladder with him. His shoes crunch through the dry brush as he approaches the house, and at first sight of the structure, you can hear his breath quicken rapidly. It's clear that the house is having a profound effect on him, though to what end, the viewer can't be sure. Again, the house's front door is open, and Henry leans his stepladder against the doorframe as he steps inside. Immediately upon entering, he freezes. There, in the center of the room, is a rickety wooden ladder. It's an A-frame ladder, the kind most people have in their garage, and it appears to have been set right below the attic door. My chest grew tight, and I again felt the sensation that Henry was being lured into something, and yet I couldn't look away. I watched as he began to approach the ladder with slow, timid steps. I could hear the wheeze of his frightened breath, I could almost feel the sweat accumulating on his palms. He took one and then two stuttering steps up the ladder before lifting the camera towards the ceiling. As he reached the top of the ladder and began to reach for the attic door, I felt my breath catch. I stared at the screen, suspended in trembling fear, yet unable to articulate what exactly I was so afraid of. He pushed the attic door open, revealing the dim space that lay beyond it. After setting the camera down inside, he heaved himself through the opening and got to his feet. As he lifts the camera back up, you can hear the attic door fall shut with a loud clap, followed by a string of curses. The room begins to come into focus and, somehow, it appears to be nearly identical to the one below it. There is a window on either side and a splintered front door at the center of one wall. Taking in his disturbingly surreal surroundings, Henry points the camera towards the floor but can see no evidence of the attic door through which he'd just entered. It was as if it had fallen shut and immediately fused with the floorboards. His breathing, which was already heavy and labored, grows panicked and unrestrained. You can see his fingers prying at the floorboards as he ravenously searches for the opening. Eventually, he gives up and makes his way towards the front door. Something incomprehensible happens when he opens the door and watching it left me with a putrid taste clinging to the walls of my esophagus. Somehow, even though he had climbed through a door in the ceiling, Henry finds himself walking through the front door on the ground level of the house. You can see the clearing, littered with sparse trees, can hear his footsteps among the nettles and pine cones, but you can't make sense of how it had all happened. The camera pans towards the roof of the house, and then back down to the door through which he had just exited. There, leaning against the doorframe frame in clear sight of the camera, is a blue stepladder. It's the last thing the viewer sees before the camera cuts. I replayed the video 11 times, trying and failing to make sense of the way he had climbed up through the ceiling and exited on the ground level. I couldn't understand how the attic door had disappeared into the floorboards. And, perhaps most chillingly, I couldn't comprehend the fact that the stepladder he'd brought with him was red at the beginning of the video, and blue when we see it at the end. Intrigued, and more than a little disturbed, I set about trying to get a hold of Henry Jensen. The town he'd mentioned, Echo, Utah, was only a few miles away from where I lived, so I knew he had to be close and the videos were only three months old, so I doubted he'd moved away in the interim. Eventually, I came across a Facebook profile belonging to a guy named Henry Clark Jensen, and from the looks of it, it was the same guy. He had attended a local high school and worked at a bar nearby. I decided to draft a message to him. This might sound crazy, I wrote, and to be honest, I'm not even totally sure you're the guy I'm looking for. But if you are, you've recently posted a series of YouTube videos documenting a house you found in the woods near Echo, Utah. I don't know how else to say this, but that house you found has appeared in some of my dreams. I find its existence curious and even somewhat frightening, and I was wondering if I could talk to you about it. A few days went by, and there is no response from Henry. There is no activity on his Facebook profile at all so I began to wonder if there was some other way I might get a hold of him. I started scanning the local paper, wondering if I could find any mention of him there. As it turned out, I did, but only in a way that would deepen the mystery. Apparently, a few weeks after the videos were uploaded, a 29-year-old bartender named Henry Jensen had gone missing from the Colville area. It was reported that he had gone out hiking and never returned, Searches had turned up nothing, and the police were able to find no evidence of foul play. In the newspaper article, which had been released a month and a half before, Henry's sister, Megan, was interviewed. She expressed a great deal of concern, stating that her brother's behavior had grown increasingly manic in the weeks before he disappeared. It was her fear that he had been suffering some kind of mental break. At the end of the article, the newspaper included a phone number Megan had set up for a tip line encouraged anyone with information about Henry's disappearance to reach out. I considered the implications of lying to her, telling her I had a tip in the hopes that I could talk to her and see if she knew anything about the videos her brother had posted. And then I considered doing nothing at all, writing off the dreams as a bizarre but unrelated coincidence leaving the disappearance of Henry Jensen where it lay. But I couldn't quite fathom that either. In the end, it was my fear that the house and the disappearance weren't unrelated that made me want to reach out to Megan. I had a strong but irrational suspicion that the house I'd seen in my dreams had somehow perpetuated Henry's disappearance. And it fed my gathering inclination that the only way to uncover what had happened to him was to find the house for myself. After calling the tip line and leaving a vague but honest message, I didn't have much in the way of expectations for Megan to get back to me. To my surprise, though, she returned my call within the hour. And despite my fears that she would think I was trying to sensationalize her brother's disappearance, she was quite willing to talk. I met her the following morning at her house, an old but well-maintained colonial set on a few acres of land in the hills. She invited me in with a polite but unenthusiastic smile and offered me a cup of coffee, her long strands of black hair swaying as she disappeared into the kitchen. A few seconds later, she returned and we sat in her living room with two generous mugs of black coffee. Her brown eyes studied the steam as it rose from the mugs. And then she lifted her attention to me. So, she said, I take it you want to talk about the videos of that house. I nodded. Did you know about it? I asked. I mean, before he... I did, she replied, with something that may have been regret. It was hard not to notice. From the moment he found that place, he was... Different. Different how? I asked. Well... Megan began and then paused to think. At first, he just seemed baffled. He told me that he had found this odd house, that it had just suddenly appeared one day. I got the feeling that he didn't think anyone had built it, that it had just manifested or something. What makes you say that? I asked. He thought it was responding to him, she explained, communicating in some way. You saw the videos, how the door was unlocked when he returned, and the next time he came back, there was a ladder set under the attic. I think he thought the house could sense his intention. It was anticipating his next move. I considered this for a moment as I took a sip of my coffee. Did he ever tell you where the house was? I asked. Well, that's part of it too, she said. He told me that it wasn't just in one place. It seemed to move. It would disappear, reappear, even exist in multiple places at once. He didn't think the rules of our world really applied to the house. I thought about that last haunting image of him exiting from the ground floor after ascending through the attic. A chill spread across my skin. Did you believe him, I asked, about the house? When you look at the footage, it's kind of hard not to. She said, glumly. So do you think it had something to do with... I don't know, she replied before I had the chance to finish the question. Perhaps. Maybe if he'd never found it in the first place, he would still be here today. Maybe we wouldn't be having this conversation at all. But something, some strange part of me, wonders if the whole thing was inevitable. It's like that feeling that things are predetermined that they happen over and over again, and there's nothing you can do to stop them. Do you know what I mean? I thought about my parents in that cold, snowy darkness, getting crushed by an 18-ton boulder in an ever-repeating loop. I didn't want to admit it, but somewhere inside of me I did know what she was talking about. Something about it all felt cyclical, unavoidable, though in a way that I didn't quite know how to explain. I surmised that the strange series of events must just be getting to my head, and decided to get going. As she walked me to the door, Megan's face grew somber. "'I don't know if you're planning on trying to find that house,' she began, "'and it's not really my place to say, but... "'Please be careful. "'You saw what happened to my brother in those videos. "'How the house changed him. "'And now he's gone.' "'She paused for a moment and took a breath.' I guess what I'm trying to say is I don't want that to happen to anyone else. I thanked her for her time and assured her that I wouldn't go looking for the house. But I knew even then that I was lying. My search for the house at that point felt inevitable, just as my parents' death and Henry's disappearance was. It felt as though there was nothing I could do to stop it, that it was part of that loop that would repeat over and over again. When I got home, I re-watched Henry's videos of the house, remembering what his sister had said about it disappearing and reappearing in other places. As I studied the footage, I began to find that the house's surroundings were ever so slightly different in each video. A tree with a large knot in its trunk was in front and to the left of the house in the first video, but nowhere to be seen in the other two. The hills in the background were far off on the horizon in the second video, but much nearer to the house in the third. I couldn't tell if the house was changing its location, or if it was somehow rearranging the landscape around it. I felt like I was losing my mind, like I was stuck in some kind of insidious simulation, the structure of which was constantly shifting. And yet, my desire to find the house could not be quelled, the following morning, I grabbed my camera and drove out towards the tiny town of Echo. As I maneuvered my car through the hills, their rolling peaks capped with drifts of quickly melting snow, I thought about what Megan had said to me the previous day, about her brother believing that he could communicate with the house. I think he thought the house could sense his intention, she had said. It was anticipating his next move. I wondered if I, too, could interact with the house in that way. If my intention to find it would be enough to make it appear before me. When I arrived in Echo, I parked my car in the parking lot of an old church and set off towards the hills on foot. The foliage was dense in some areas, but not impossible to navigate through. Shrubs pricked at my jeans, and slushy mounds of snow crunched underfoot. As I walked... I held my camera out in front of me, recording everything in my path. All the while, I focused my intention on the house, hoping I could somehow get it to manifest before me. But when six hours had gone by and I still saw no sign of the enigmatic structure, I decided that all that stuff about focusing my intention was a bunch of new-age nonsense. I hiked back to my car, slightly disappointed and extremely hungry, and made my way back home. Sitting in my bedroom, I decided to review the footage, just to see if I'd missed anything. From the kitchen downstairs, I could hear my sister bang around with pots and pans as she cleaned up from her latest culinary endeavor. I was fast-forwarding through the footage, about an hour and a half into my hike, when something caught my eye. A single pale white frame that stood in contrast to the others. I rewound and hit play. A feeling of intense awe came over me as I watched the footage scan across the surface of the house. Its splintered white siding and crumbling roof was in the frame for only a minute or two, but still, it was there. It had been right in front of me, and I hadn't even seen it. How? I asked myself in the dim stillness of my bedroom. How is this possible? I rewound again and carried my laptop downstairs to the kitchen. Hoisting the screen in front of my sister, I hit play. This might sound crazy, I said, but can you see this? This house right here? She looked queerly at the screen and then back at me. Yeah, she said. Of course I can. It's just an old house in the woods. Why? Just making sure, I said as I raced back upstairs. The exchange probably seemed insane to her, but I was beyond caring. I had actually found the house. I edited the footage down and added some narration, explaining the house's general location and its bizarre nature. When I was done, I uploaded the video to YouTube. My thinking was that the more people that saw the house, the better chance we would have at further documenting and understanding it. In the morning I drove back to Echo and followed the path I had taken through the hills the previous day. This time I watched where I was going through the viewfinder of the camera. If the house was going to show up in the recording again I would see it there first. As I entered the clearing where the house had been the day before I felt a knot begin to develop in the pit of my stomach. There, in the tiny two-inch viewfinder of my camera, was the house that had haunted my dreams. I took slow, pensive steps as I approached it, just as much wanting to flee as to explore and understand the elusive structure. When I stood before it, it was still invisible to the naked eye, detectable only through the digital screen of my camera. Reaching a trembling handout, I prodded it where the camera told me the front door was, and then I felt my fingers brush across a cold brass knob. The instant my skin made contact, the whole structure rippled into existence. I leapt backwards, my eyes shooting from the camera to the weathered white structure that now stood before me. For a moment, I was paralyzed, cagey and awestricken, staring at the impossible appearance of the house. It was just as I'd seen it in my dream, which made it all the more uncanny to see in person. The slatted siding was chipped and splintering, the battered roof missing a dozen shingles. The windows, foggy and caked with dust, presented a scant interior that was at once inviting and also petrifying. Walk away, I told myself. Stay away from this place. There's something evil here. But even as I recited the words to myself, I felt my fingers grip the knob and slowly push the door open. On the inside, I found the house to be much the same as I had seen it in Henry's video. The only difference that I could tell at first glance was that there was no attic door. The boards that comprised the ceiling were loose and sagging, but there was no opening among them. Gazing up at them, I walked towards the center of the room. And it was there that I stepped on what I first believed to be a loose floorboard. But when my eyes traced to the ground, I realized that I was in fact standing on a basement door. It was rectangular, cut directly into the floor and fitted with two brass hinges. I got to one knee and tried to pry it open but the space between the floor and the opening was so narrow that it was impossible for me to get my fingers under it. I tried to jam my car key into the slit, but I couldn't get enough leverage to lift the door open. Swearing under my breath, I got to my feet. I would have to come back with some kind of tool that I could use to pry the basement door open. At no point as I stood there, did I stop to assess whether my thoughts and actions were verging on the obsessive, whether there may be something in that basement that I truly shouldn't see. I was functioning only on a primal need to find out what was beyond the veil, to understand that which life had kept hidden from me, and I would pursue those questions to their end, even if it meant my own undoing. That night, I uploaded the day's footage to YouTube, I charged my camera so I could go back the following day and hunted through the garage for a tool I could use to pull up the basement door. As I walked back into the house carrying a heavy green pry bar that had once belonged to my dad, my sister gave me a concerned glance. "'What are you doing with that thing?' she asked. "'Um, nothing,' I said, just trying to fix something. "'Are you okay?' she asked. "'You seem a bit different lately.' Yeah, I assured her, of course. I've just been working on a little video project. Okay, she said, as if my answer were anything but satisfactory before returning her attention to the TV. That night, I lay awake in my bed. Every time I neared sleep, my mind would conjure the basement door of the house. I would watch it open, and I would see a torrent of unnamed horrors being unleashed upon the world. Anxiety and anticipation kept me awake, and when the first light of dawn began to break the horizon, I grabbed the pry bar in my camera and went out to my car. This time, when I arrived at the house, I didn't have to spot it through the viewfinder of my camera. It stood, clear as day, its presence ominous in the morning light. I tried to steady my hand as I filmed it on my approach, a terrified eagerness coursing through me. I leaned my dad's old pry bar against the front wall of the house and stepped inside. To my astonishment, the basement door now had a wooden handle protruding from it. My palms began to sweat as I knelt before the door and pulled it open, fixing my camera on the abysmal darkness that lay below. I swung first one leg and then the other over the edge, allowing them to dangle there for a moment above the pit of blackness before I lowered myself inside. My feet collided with the wooden floor and I collapsed onto its surface. A loud clap rang out above me and I looked up to see that the basement door had fallen shut. As my eyes adjusted to the darkness, I took in my surroundings. I could see that I was in a simple square room. Soon, on either side of the room, dim windows began to come into focus. Before me, there was a splintered wooden door with a round brass knob. My blood began to run cold as I realized what had just happened. I looked above and below me, but there was no sign of either an attic nor a basement door. The only exit was through the impossibly positioned front door. My breath hitched as I pushed it open and saw the long black pry bar leaning on the wall next to it. Outside, The morning light was falling over the hilly, tree-laden landscape. A surge of panic rushed through me, and I shut off the camera. When I got back to my car and climbed inside, I felt my phone buzz in my pocket. I pulled it out to see that I had received a Facebook message. It was from somebody that I didn't know. This might sound crazy, it said, and to be honest, I'm not even totally sure you're the guy I'm looking for. But if you are, you've recently posted a series of YouTube videos documenting a house you found in the woods near Echo, Utah. I don't know how else to say this, but that house you found has appeared in some of my dreams. I find its existence curious and even somewhat frightening. And I was wondering if I could talk to you about it. I thought about the message a lot over the course of the next few days. I wanted to respond to tell this person to stay well away, but I had a feeling it wouldn't matter if I did. I had a feeling that the world I'd found myself in was no longer the one from which I'd posted that video. I walked into the Echo House from One World and out of it into an entirely different one. The uncannily familiar girl that I live with is not really my sister, but a strange familiar, a replica, a double, And somewhere, my real sister is grappling with the loss of her missing brother. She's sitting in the house that once belonged to her parents, unwittingly awaiting the arrival of a young man who would like to ask her some questions about a house he saw in a video that her brother had posted online.